3. Revelation chapter 3. So I was going to preach this sermon on Sunday, December 20th, but then we got snowed out. And then Seth preached last Sunday on verses 7 to 13, but I just couldn't throw it away. So I'm going to take us back to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Um, sort of a completist here, so I need to preach all these churches. They're so good. And this is a church in Sardis, so we skipped this one, so I want to preach it this Sunday. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And let me read the text, and then we'll dig into it together. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but... You are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, what's the deal with Tiger Woods anyway? Why are we so shocked and surprised at what happened? You know, I was thinking about this. It's not the first time in the history of the world that, um, you know, a famous person or a politician or an actor or somebody of prominence and and position and rank has used their position to engage in this kind of behavior. I mean, this isn't like this has never happened before. It's happened many times and unfortunately will probably happen again. So why were we all so aghast at it? And I was trying to think about that. And my own little theory is that it's because we were sort of sold a certain picture or image of Tiger Woods that that really was different from the reality. There was well, he really became a brand. He wasn't just a great athlete, which he is, you know, one of the greatest golfers of all time. But he became sort of a brand, and part of that brand was wholesomeness, integrity, politeness, the fa- the good son to a good father. Um, you know, squeaky clean, all-American kind of boy. I mean, he even had kind of a baby face. So, so I think we were sold a whole image, and I think that's why it was so jarring that the image we bought into was so different from the reality of who he ended up being. It makes you wonder. If somebody knew the reality of who I was or who you were, would they be shocked? Would it be that different from the image and, and the person that we try to project out there. This morning as we look at this letter to the church in Sardis, this is one of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. The risen Jesus is speaking to seven different churches in the Roman province of Asia, which would today be like western Turkey. And there were seven churches there, and one of them was this church in Sardis. And Jesus is confronting this church because it has a certain reputation that is very much at odds with the reality of where the church was. 
Let's look at this letter together. Verse 1, it says in Revelation 3.1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, so just for preliminaries, this letter starts out like all the others. You have, first of all, a command to write the letter. And then you have Jesus identifying Himself. And here He says He holds two things. He holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I take the seven spirits of God to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I I argued this before. It doesn't mean that there's seven Holy Spirits. But the number seven in Revelation is, is frequently and repeatedly used as a number for completeness or wholeness. You know, the seven days of creation, it was completed. So, so in other words, it's a way of saying the Holy Spirit in all of His fullness and all of His workings. Uh, but He not only is Jesus God, because He holds this Holy Spirit in His hand, but He's also the Lord of the church, because He holds the seven stars. Back in chapter 1, we were told that the seven stars are a symbolic representation of the seven churches, sort of the, the heavenly counterpart to the earthly churches. So Jesus is not only God with the the Holy Spirit, He is also the one who is Lord of the church. He holds the churches in His hand. The churches are in His palm. And now He is speaking to these churches to give them instructions. And now He speaks to the church in Sardis. And and it's not going well in Sardis. Look what He says in verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So at least in the other letters to the other churches, Jesus usually starts off with some good news before giving them the bad news. If you look at the other letters we've studied, typically He'll say, hey, you're doing this well, keep it up, great work. Now we've got to talk about some stuff. This letter, the situation is so dire, the circumstances are so perilous, that Jesus dispenses with the, the preliminary good job stuff and He goes straight to, look, we've got to talk directly here because there is a crisis that you're facing in your church. And the crisis is that the reputation of being alive spiritually does not match the reality, which is spiritual death. Jesus says the reality is, I can't get a pulse. I don't hear any breath. I touch you and you're cold to the touch. You seem like a dead person, not a live church. Now what does it mean to be a spiritually dead church? What is it that Jesus is seeing or not seeing in this church that gives, makes it make the diagnosis that you're like a spiritually dead church. What is it that makes a church spiritually dead? Is it the numbers of people who are in the church? Is it numbers that indicate life or death? Well, that can in some circumstances be related to that, but not necessarily. I mean, I've been, maybe you have too, have been in some very large churches where I felt like something is just seriously spiritually amiss, where where it felt more like a, a production and a show in sort of a drummed up excitement that it felt like I was being uh, sort of performed to. And I thought, is this real spiritual life? And conversely, I've been in some very small churches that have felt very spiritually alive. This summer I had a privilege, uh, one Sunday I was on vacation, but I was asked by a friend, to, uh, and the pastor was a church down in Rehoboth, and I went down and preached at his church. Probably just 30 folks there. Man, it was so alive. The people were worshiping God from their hearts. After the service, the fellowship between the people. I mean, it's one of those you couldn't get them to leave the building kind of churches. They just kept loving on each other and there was warmth and community there. And boy, you would not, before the service, I prayed with the elders. And they said, come on, let's go in the back. We're going to pray before the service. And these men, they got down on their knees. I was like, oh, I guess we're kneeling here. And they got on their knees and they just 
asked for God's power to come into the service and to bless the preaching. And I was like, whew, this isn't a live church. So, numbers may or may not indicate the spiritual health. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes churches are small because they're dying, you know. So, you never can quite tell. And that's not what Jesus is looking at here. He doesn't mention the size of their congregation. It's the spiritual vitality of the people who are there, however many they happen to be. Notice verse 2. Here's the problem. This is why they were dead. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds. That's the key word. Your deeds complete in the sight of my God. That when I look at what's coming out of you as Christians, I'm not seeing the right things. Or, or to put it in different, a different metaphor, same idea, you're not bearing fruit as a congregation. Jesus said, by, by the fruit you will know them. And, and so He says, I look at your life and, and I'm not seeing the things coming out of you that a spiritually alive person would have. Obviously, we can't look at each other and know who's spiritually alive with God. We don't have an x-ray machine or a spiritual MRI for that. But, but we can see what's coming out of our lives. The deeds, the, the evidence of the inward reality. And so Jesus says, I look at your inward your deeds and it's not there. You know? So what, what are the deeds that he's looking for? Well, it doesn't say in this verse. But we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And if you look at some of the other letters to the seven churches, what you find is that word deeds appears many times. And you can look at some of those other letters and say, oh, those were the kinds of deeds that Jesus was looking for. So let's just do that real quickly. I'm going to look at three examples of the kinds of deeds that mark a spiritually alive church, or at least are the kinds of things Jesus is looking for. Uh, one of them, let's go back to the letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1. The first deed is that a spiritually alive church is concerned for biblical truth. It's concerned for the truth of God's Word. Look at uh, the, chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. So there, the church in Ephesus was a hard-working church. They had fought a good fight. It sounds like what happened was there were some apostles who came into their church with some false teaching. And the people in Ephesus found it out. They sniffed it out. And they said, you know, that's not right what you're teaching. And they confronted these people. And uh, that's hard work. You don't, that doesn't make for a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling in a church. <laughs> when, when leadership in a church has to stand up and say, what you're teaching is wrong. We don't want you to teach it here. What if the false teachers say, no, we're not going without a fight. Well, what are you going to do? You've got to get rid of them. So, so sometimes, sometimes you have to fight in a church for what's right and for the truth of God's Word. And so, that's what they did. And they fought, and it was not pretty, and they didn't make for a warm, fuzzy, happy, squishy feeling in the church for a while. They had to fight for the truth. And Jesus says, I commend you for fighting for the truth. That's a deed that evidences a living church. It's a church that cares about God's truth and about biblical doctrine. And conversely, a dead church is one that is just thrown doctrine out the window. I mean, brothers and sisters, is not New England littered with, I mean, I don't remember counted them, but probably thousands of beautiful, historic, white, colonial church buildings that were built in 18 whatever, whatever. 
And, and you know, they have a reputation. That's, that's the historic first church of whateverville. And, you know, this was the first church built here. And it's one of the earliest structures. And notice the architecture. But you go in and it's dead. The Bible is not taught. The real Christian faith isn't there. If the people who built that church knew what was being taught in that pulpit today, they'd roll over in their graves. And, And so, abandoning biblical truth and abandoning sound doctrine is an evidence of death. But there's another evidence of death um, or an evidence of life, however you want to look at it. And it's number two, is a willingness to stand up for the name of Jesus even at great personal cost. A willingness to stand up and be identified with Jesus even when it hurts. Look at uh, the deeds of Philadelphia. This is the one Seth preached on last Sunday. Just a quick review. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8, the church in Philadelphia. This was a persecuted church, a suffering church. And he says in verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Man, this church is getting pummeled. Yet, he says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's an evidence of a living church and a living Christian. A willingness to stand up for the name of Jesus, even if it costs us. You know, I mean, how, how timely to have the Soderbergs here. A willingness to stand up for the name of Jesus. Has anyone here been interrogated for six hours by the police for their faith? I never have. I can't imagine. That would be traumatic. You know, <laughs> we would be like, oh, I give up. You know, that's what a lot of believers endure around the world for their faith. To stand up for the name of Jesus, even if it costs us, even if there's suffering, even if we're rejected or ridiculed or ostracized, you know, are we willing to stand and say, yes, I belong to Christ? Or do we show signs of death where we say, you know what, I'm going to just go along, get along, I'm not going to let people know where I stand. They, you know, they tell the dirty jokes, I'm laughing, I'm part of the crew, I'm drinking what they're drinking, I'm doing what the crew is doing because I don't want to stand out and catch flack for that. I'm not going to stand up for Christ. That's a sign of spiritual death. It's interesting, I just finished a book uh, a couple weeks ago called, it's kind of an interesting book, called The Churching of America, 1776 to 2005. The subtitle is Winners and Losers in Our Religious Economy. And, uh, and it's, it's a sociological book, and it's a study of just denominations in America, starting with the colonial period to today, and seeing sociologically which denominations have flourished, which ones have declined, and then trying to find trends. So it's not so much a theological examination as kind of a sociological, sort of an interesting take on it. But what, one of the things they, they sort of conclusions they drew was that the pattern is that when churches and Christians are willing to stand in tension to their culture and willing to, instead of make the church like the culture, to try to stand distinct and say, we stand for Christ and we're not like that, that those churches, generally speaking, thrive. Which is kind of counterintuitive. But when churches have said, no, 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 we need, to, we need to lower the bar, we need to sort of fit in with the culture on us, we need to go along, we need to accommodate cultural beliefs and values and practices, that historically and across the board, those churches die. Those denominations die. And in fact, he's, he even traces it in denominations that at first are faithful and they grow, and then undergo a change in leadership and philosophy to say, you know, we need to be more relevant. And then pff, those churches die. And so you can even trace it within 
whole denominations. It's really fascinating. But it's this, I think it's the same kind of idea that I see here, which is, are we willing to stand for the name of Christ? That's the way of spiritual life. Even if it means I'm going to experience tension with the world around me. But the church in Sardis didn't. They compromised. They sold out. Perhaps they capitulated with the, the, the idolatry that was taking place within the city itself. So a living church is one that cares about biblical truth. The deeds of a living church is a willingness to stand for Jesus and, be, uh, and to pay a price for it in some cases. And then just one last example of the deeds of a living church. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. This is the church in Thyatira. He says, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, your perseverance. If we have a living, vital relationship with Jesus, there's going to be fruit coming out of us. We're going to be loving. We're going to have faith. We're going to be wanting to serve one another. There's going to be a desire to see people in the community come to know Jesus. I mean, that's part of being a real, alive Christian. You don't have to be told to do it. It just kind of comes out of living healthy Christians. Um, But in a dying church, you don't see that spiritual vitality. Haven't you ever been in a church? Or maybe you have, where it was like that. There was just kind of a toxic, gripey, negative conflicted, people always at each other, lack of trust. And it just becomes like, it's like a toxic atmosphere in the church. And what's funny and sad is that in some cases, those churches may have a doctrinal statement that's right on the money. And you may look at it and say, oh, there's a biblical church. Look at the doctrinal statement. Good doctrinal statement, are you putting it into practice? Are you living it out? And, and so that's an issue too. It's not just believing the right things, it's then living the right things out in our lives and having a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the, the center of all this. is really about walking with the Lord. And not just having an externalized kind of faith. And so Jesus says to the church here in Sardis, you got a reputation for being alive, but guess what? You can't fool me. I know that you're really dead spiritually. I believe that South Shore Baptist Church has a reputation for being alive. I hear that. I mean, I don't know how to measure that. I don't have statistic. It's more anecdotal. I talk to people who don't go to our church, and they're like, oh, we heard about your church. We hear good things are happening. I don't know what that means. Um, I'm encouraged. Or, or, I, or I talk to someone from our church who talked to someone and said, hey, I talked to my neighbor, and someone just told me this morning, they're like, I talked to the person who does Pilates for me, and they said, we've been thinking about coming to your church. We hear good things. Again, I don't know what that means. So, that's exciting. There's a good reputation to some extent. I don't know how to manage that. I don't know how to control that. I never had a good reputation in high school. I was a nerd, and so I didn't know how to, like, I didn't know how to garner a good reputation, but somehow reputations get out there. They're sort of mysterious things. And so, on the one hand, I'm really encouraged, but I think in light of this text, it's a warning, isn't it? Does the reality match our reputation? Are we really the church that people hear that we are? Or whatever they're hearing somehow. You know? Is that us? Are we like this? Is the reputation, the reality kind of like this? Or is it like that? Or is it like that? Or where is it? And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Who cares what the reputation is? What's the reality before the Lord? And I suppose that really leads to a deeper question, which is, 
does my reality match the reputation of being a Christian? Because what's the church anyway? It's just us. And the church will be what each of us individually are with the Lord in our own faithfulness. And, and so the, I have to kind of break it down to myself and start there and say, okay, where is it in my life? You know, people think I'm a certain way. Does my reality match that before the Lord? Do I have a vital, vibrant, living relationship with Jesus that's changing me and that's producing spiritual fruit? Or is it all just kind of external, uh, you know, Hollywood scenery that's not really real, that's just fake and cardboard? Another book I just started to read recently. You know, one of those books you pick it up and you're like, why haven't I ever read this earlier? This is so good. It's called How People Change. It's just a book about using the gospel to work through change in our lives and to become godly people. Just simple applying the gospel to our lives. Let me just read you the first page. It was, it was so good. Um, and I think it really nails this whole tension between reputation and reality. The author writes, At first I was impressed. Phil was not only familiar with Scripture and systematic theology, he also owned an extensive library of biblical commentaries by the who's who of theological writers. There were few places in Scripture I could go and few theological references I could make that were new to Phil. Yet, there was something dramatically wrong. If you were to turn from Phil's library and watch the video of his life, you would see a very different man. Phil uh, always seemed to be pointing out something wrong around him, but was, uh, yet he was successful at very little himself. He had the theological dexterity of a gymnast, but he lived like a relational paraplegic. His marriage to Ellie had been tumultuous from day one. He seemed completely unable to diagnose or correct the unending stream of problems that had sucked the oxygen out of this relationship. His relationship with his grown children was distant at best. He always seemed to be embroiled in some drama with his extended family. He was never satisfied in his career. He had been involved in four churches in three decades. The problem was, the guy goes on to write, that few seemed to know the video film. He and Ellie never fought publicly. They never separated. They never considered divorce. They were faithful in church attendance and in giving, in Sunday school classes and Bible studies. Phil came across as knowledgeable and committed. Yet at home, he was easily irritated and often explosive. Most of his free time was spent on the computer. He and Ellie rarely talked beyond the level of plans for the day. And even then, his responses toward her were harsh and impatient. Terms like love, grace, and joy did not characterize Phil's life. You know, what a picture of an externalized Christianity. Hey, I'm on the deacons. I'm on this committee. I help out with the children's church. I do this and I do that. And I give. Oh, you must be a vibrant Christian. But there's another side to us, the reality, that just doesn't mesh. Where we don't see the basic fruit of the Holy Spirit. Where's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That's the real evidence of someone who is in a vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus. Um, You know, maybe your family is a strong Christian family. And everyone in the church knows your family is a strong Christian family. That doesn't matter. Where's your relationship with the Lord? Um, You know, the question I, I sort of kept asking myself as I studied this passage and was preparing to preach it, and it's kind of like, maybe I'll just throw the question out to you. Does Jesus have all of my heart? Am I fully surrendered to Christ? Am I in love with Christ? Is He my heart's desire? 
Or have I let other things fill that gap? Where is my relationship with the Lord? Is it real or am I just about keeping up the phony pretenses? Maybe we need to even get more basic. Are you really a Christian? Let's just start with ABCs. Are you really a Christian? You say, well, I was baptized and I went to CCD or I went to vacation Bible school and, and I do this and I do that. No, no, no. Are you really a Christian? As you can do all that stuff, you know, be an expert at churchianity but not be a real Christian with Christianity. It, do you really know the Lord? Have you really come to the end of yourself and repented of your sins and said, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you put all of your confidence in the cross of Christ for your salvation? Or is your confidence still in the curio cabinet of medals and trophies and diplomas and all the stuff that we all rely on for our self-identity? Or have you said like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's real Christianity. An inner transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. Are we really Christians? Maybe we need to just start with that basic question. And so Jesus confronts this church, and I think He confronts anyone who reads it, to say, there's the reputation, there's the reality. How do we bring them together so that they're one in Christ? There's the challenge. Notice the words He uses. I mean, this is dire. This is not kind of like a, you know, one of those personality quizzes on the back of a People magazine or something. You know, oh, where, where are you at? You know, this is like dire analysis. This is, you know, life and death. The life and death language. Look at verse 2. He says, wake up. Look at that language. Wake up. You know, you're on the road. It's 2 in the morning. You're falling asleep. You're nodding off at the wheel. You keep going into the median. You better wake up or you're going to be in the ditch. Time to pay attention. Look what he says, verse 2. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Your love for Christ used to be a roaring bonfire. But now it's gone down and down and down and all that's left is a pile of old white ashes. And if you brush some of the ashes away and kind of look in there, you might see one little ember. Just one little ember that could be snuffed out if a raindrop fell on it. And he's saying, strengthen it. It's about to die. You know, and you think, how did I get there? I, used, I remember ten years ago, I, I was a really on-fire Christian, we used that jargon. I was really zealous for Christ, and I was walking closely with Him, and somehow I just got busy, or who knows what happened, and now I'm an ember. You know? I don't know what happened. You know what? Who cares? Strengthen what remains. Don't worry about the past. Focus on the present. And strengthen what remains, that faith that you have. He says, look at the next command, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. In other words, go back to the basics. Go back to the basic things you've heard about Christ. Start there. Open your Bible again. Have you read your Bible devotionally? For who knows how long. Were you've opened, when I read devotionally, I mean opening the Bible and saying, God, I need you to speak to me right now from this Word. Have you prayed devotionally? Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. Has your prayer life been real or is it just kind of, you know, the only time I really pray is, dear God, thank you for this food and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, is that the extent of my prayer life or have I really connected with God through prayer? Is it a vital living relationship? And then the last one, he says, obey and repent. If you feel totally lost, if you feel totally dead, what do I do? Repentance. 
Come to the Lord and just say, God, I am here to confess I am a spiritual phony. And I've been living a facade and a fantasy. Everyone thinks that I'm something that I'm not. Lord, I need you to do some radical emergency surgery on my soul. So much gunk has come into me that I don't even know how to clear it out. There's so much just sin and pride and other things. Lord, I barely love you anymore. And I love the world. I love everything else. But I don't love you. God, I need you to just kind of supernaturally purge my soul of this and rekindle the flame of faith in my soul that I know I used to have. That's a prayer of repentance. God, just weed this garden that has been overrun with the vines and the weeds of sin. Let it begin to bear fruit again, Lord. And no matter where we are in our lives, if there's just that one ember, if you still have one breath left, you can repent and come to Christ and ask for this renewing work that the Lord can do. Look how serious it is. This is, everything's in the balance. Look at halfway through verse 3. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. It's a rather jarring metaphor for God to compare himself to a criminal. You know, what does that mean? God's a thief? Well, in the sense that the thief comes unexpectedly. You're sound asleep, you wake up, and there's a guy in your room with a gun. <gasps> it's suddenness. That's the image. And so Christ says, look, you got time, but you don't know how much time. You need to repent. And now is the time. Don't keep putting it off. Don't keep thinking, I can drive a little further. Because all of a sudden, boom, you're in the ditch. It's like walking across thin ice and you hear it cracking and creaking underneath your feet. You're like, no, I got this. I can keep doing this. Suddenly the ice breaks. How, how, do, you, how do you go into the ice? You know, It's not like quicksand in the movies. It's not like in the ice, like, oh, I'm going into the ice. Yeah, you know, Hey, someone throw me a rope. It's just one minute you're dry, the next minute you're lethally cold and wet. And it's the same image here. It's all of a sudden, Christ says, you don't have time to work on this. You just need to come to me now and repent. It's like the guy walking down the street who seems hale and healthy and fine. What you can't see is he has a 99% blockage in his coronary. In one tick, he could be gone. In one tick, he could be on the ground. That's where we are spiritually. There's not time to think this through. We just need to come to the Lord. And we've had warning signs. You know, we've had the chest pain. We've had the tingling and the shortness of breath. But we were like, well, I just, you know, had a bad, you know, meatball at, at Christmas Eve. And, uh, you know, the shoveling, you know, just a little worn out, you know, from the shoveling. That's what, yeah. I'm sure I'm fine, you know. But you're not fine. I'm not fine. We could go down in a minute. One moment from now, you could be here. The next, you could be in eternity. Are you ready for that? You know? Oh yeah, I know I'm a Christian. Why do you think you're a Christian? Well, because, you know, when I was 10 years old at this camp, you know, they said they wanted to be a Christian. I raised my hand, so, you know. Okay. <laughs> what other evidence is there that you're a Christian? You know, that's not in the Bible, raising your hand at camp. <laughs> what is in the Bible is bearing fruit in a transformed life. Not that we're perfect, but is there fruit? Would anyone... You know, if you were in a court of law and on, the, and on trial, would, any, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Looking at your life, in my life. This is eternal. Eternal issues at stake here. Brothers and sisters, this is the most pressing crisis that we face. The, the news media makes us think the whole world's in crisis all the time. 
You know, there's global warming crisis and economic crisis, and it's always some crisis, and there are big crises out there. But they are nothing compared to the crisis that we face of having to stand before God someday. You know, heaven and hell are at stake. And so Jesus uses these incredibly strong words and images to call this church to repent and to wake up. But there's hope. Look at verse 4. Just to wrap this up. Look at the hope in verse 4. He says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. In other words, they haven't compromised with the culture around them. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. There's always a remnant, it seems. Even in churches that have really gone off the tracks, you can, it's surprising. You sometimes find believers there. You know, there'll be one little couple that's left and they're... They're faithful and you talk to them and they're like, oh, we don't know how much longer we can stay in this church. But you know, we're here because we're teaching the kids program. And and our hope is we can at least reach these kids. And boy, it's tough being in this church because boy, our, our pastor, he doesn't preach the Bible at all. But for those kids, we're here. And so even in a Sardis, you can sometimes find a few believers who are faithful, who are praying, who are enduring for the sake of the Gospel. And the good news is that no matter where we are or how dead we are or how slow our pulse has become, we can still be transformed and join the remnant. Because look at verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. So he's saying, you can be like the remnant if you overcome. Notice these other blessings. You'll never have your name blotted out from the book of life. In other words, it's a confidence of assurance. He says, you will, uh, but I'll acknowledge His name before my Father and His angels. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges Me before men, I'll acknowledge Him before my Father in Heaven. Whoever denies Me before men, I'll deny before my Father in Heaven. Are we willing to stand up publicly and say, I stand with Jesus? You know. So no matter how dead you are or how far gone you've fallen no matter how big the problems are you can still overcome by coming to Christ and when we do we'll have dressed in white we'll have our name in the book of life we'll be acknowledged before my father in heaven I kind of you know I always have to see this as a movie in my head Uh, so, so I visualize this movie as a person coming to the great banquet feast of the lamb at the end of time coming to the the one banquet you don't ever want to miss Eternal joy with the Lord. And coming to the banquet, and we walk up to the mater d', some angel, or I suppose Peter is always in these stories, right? And he's there, he's the mater d', and, and he says, well, let's open the books and see if your name's here. Yep, you're on the guest list. Oh, and look, you've come dressed appropriately. Only those dressed in white can enter. And we walk into the banquet hall, and you know, all the people and the angels are there, and there's the head table way up there with the Father, you know, and Jesus is there at his right hand reigning. And suddenly Jesus sees you from across the room and he stands up and he says, Father, that one is mine. That one is mine. Come up here. I have a place for you at the table. Acknowledge before the Father and for the angels. This is what's at stake. The eternal destiny of our souls. Either with God forever or forever under his wrath and curse. This is what's at stake. This is why Jesus is using this extreme language to get our attention to wake up. And the good news is there's always time. It's always possible. And you think, it's not possible for me, man. I am so messed up. 
I have so much baggage. I have so much... God can do it. Go back to verse 1. These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God in His hand. There is a Holy Spirit. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? You know? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit that, that He's real? The Holy Spirit can do anything. Isn't that what we just celebrated? all the Christmas decorations up. Isn't that what we just celebrated though? The angel comes to Mary. The angel says, you're going to be with child. And Mary says, um, you know, how's that going to be? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. How can I have a child? He says, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then my favorite line in that story, the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And so God can do it. You can't. I can't fix you. You know, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can create something that has never existed before. God can call into existence that which is not. And He can create spiritual life where there's only been deadness. And so let us turn to Christ today, right now, ten minutes ago, while we still have time. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, take our hearts, we pray. We pray, take all of our hearts, we offer them to you. We want to be alive. We want to have a living relationship with you. Like Enoch in the Old Testament who walked with the Lord. We want to walk with you. Lord Jesus, our hearts desire to be living Christians who are producing real spiritual fruit and not just externalized phony Christians. Lord, we want to really know You. We really want to be alive. And so we just call out to You again, Jesus, the same Jesus who saved us. And we say, Jesus, pour out Your Holy Spirit into our hearts to make us alive. Lord, I pray that that our reputations and our reality would increasingly coalesce. Lord, that You might make us be the people that we claim to be as Christians. God, I pray for South Shore Baptist Church that we would not only have a reputation of being alive, but we would really be alive. Lord Jesus, would you be pleased in our church? Do whatever you have to do here in this congregation. Lord, we're talking about a building project, but Father, we're even more concerned about the spiritual building project, that you would make us a faithful, godly people in this congregation. So Lord, do whatever you have to do. Do whatever renovations you have to do to make us your people. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't even know for certain if they're a Christian, would you give them grace right now simply to call out to you and call in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join in singing, Revive Us Again. Psalm 80, 18 says...